So, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. For the last uh, three or so years, I've been, uh, been trying to make sense of Brexit. Uh, I think delivering net zero makes Brexit look like a walk in the park. So, anyway, so the question we're going to address today is whether recreating the Department of Energy and Climate Change, uh, which had a brief life between 2008 and 2016, should be a key part of the government's strategy to deliver net zero, or would it be, as so many other machinery of government changes are, a distraction from the main event? We've got a top panel that I'm going to introduce to you. But first of all, I want to do a few housekeeping announcements. Um, first thing to know is there are no fire alarms scheduled. No one's told me that anything otherwise, she said. Uh, therefore, if there is a fire alarm goes off, please go down the main stairs and assemble by the statue out there. Second thing is, in the unlikely but not totally impossible event, because this did happen uh, last year, uh, there is a first aid emergency. Could you please clear the room and could you please leave it to our first aiders to deal with it, including phoning the ambulance, because the ambulance got very confused last time when too many people were calling uh, and that delayed dealing with that. So we will then tell you what's happening. So please do all of that. Uh, final thing to remind you is this is live streamed. So if you are a civil servant or someone else uh, who might need to take care with what they say, uh, please be aware of that. We cannot edit you out later. Uh, it's now on the record. But please do not be inhibited in asking questions, and please tweet along at IFG events and the very first outing for our new hashtag, uh, IFG Net Zero. And this is the start of what we hope to do as a project, answering the question about if the UK government is serious about delivering its net zero target, how does it need to organise government to do that? And one of the things we're going to say is we are hoping to run a series of events and uh, various other things around that theme. If anyone in the audience is at all interested in working with us or partnering on any of those, my colleague Pritesh Mystery there uh, is there and happy to discuss any sorts of partnerships anyone might be interested in. So that's all the announcements now. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our extraordinary distinguished panel. On my far right, uh, there's absolutely zero political symbolism in any of this, zero. is... Sir Edward Davey, acting co-leader of the Liberal Democrats and former Secretary of State at the Department for Energy and Climate Change in probably the heyday of DEC under the coalition government. Uh, then we have on my immediate right Angela Francis. Angela is Chief Advisor, Economics and Economic Development at the World Wildlife Fund UK. And uh, so she comes at this from a uh, very distinctive environment concern angle. Uh, on my immediate left is Angela Hepworth. This is the first ever IFG event where we've managed to have two Angelas on a panel. <laughs> Apologies for lack of diversity there, but anyway. I've <laughs> uh, never An been accused of that before. <laughs> Angela is the Policy and Regulation Director at EDF Energy and was previously a civil servant at it says at DTI, but I don't think she's old enough to have been at DTI. Oh, I was. So I was. it I must was have been called Bisber, yes. whatever. It got named all through that period when we went through a series of changing the names of departments rather too often. And then on my far left is Guy Newey. Guy is now Strategy and Performance Director at the Energy Systems Catapult, and he's a former policy advisor to Greg Clark at the Department of Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy. So. 
the now department that houses energy and climate change, but before that was special advisor to Amber Rudd when she was Secretary of State at the Department of Energy and Climate Change. And previous to that, he worked on energy policy and other things at Policy Exchange. So, format is going to be, I'm going to pitch a couple of questions at our panel, and then we really do want comments and questions from the audience that they can react to, and we'll allow loads and loads of time for that, because I know there are lots of people in the audience who have very distinctive views on this. So, let's pitch in the question. We asked, should the government recreate the Department of Energy Climate Change? Ed, should the, department, should the government recreate the Department of Energy and Climate Change? What should it be thinking about as it addresses the need for a mock change here? No, it shouldn't. It should go much further. We need a much stronger department, I would uh, call it, the Department for Net Zero. If we're going to go for this, which we must, we've got to go further and faster than we've ever done before. And the Department of Energy and Climate Change was a great uh, initiative, <coughs> a great proposal, did some fantastic things. But as Secretary of State there for just over three years, I knew that it didn't have all the powers it needed. Whether it's on the adaptation side, which was left with DEFRA, whether it's parts of housing, parts of transport, parts of finance, it just needed more. And if, if you're serious about this, you've got to get a department, you've got to get the focus, you've got to get the accountability, you've got to get the, uh, the profile. And that really does uh, mean the cabinet minister with all those powers. Now, I accept that machinery of government changes, but only as good as the political will that lies behind them. So you could do all this, but then achieve nothing, right? Because it's the politicians who are going to not just say things, but do things. Um, and you know, I think that's just a truism, isn't it, really? However, if you're going to galvanise Whitehall and the amazing civil servants uh, who serve our country so well, you're going to get galvanised them, and through them, the rest of the public sector and the private sector, I actually think you need something like that, but something much stronger. Okay, I'm going to it now. Guy, you were there, Amber Rudd, followed on by uh, moving to Bayes. What, what's your take on that? Do you agree with Ed? Uh, well, I agree with lots of what Ed said, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't recreate the Department of Energy and Climate Change. And I say that uh, last, the last six months at the Department of Energy and Climate Change, once we cleaned up all of Ed's mess that he'd left, uh, left behind. It's a, We're not it's making a, gen a gentle joke. We'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> um, was, was the most satisfying kind of uh, experience of my kind of professional career. Um, and indeed, the creation of the new department, business energy and industrial strategy, was uh, one of the most difficult uh, six months of my entire career. And it's, uh, and this is, and the, that's why I lean towards the not recreating, because the machinery of government changes are so disruptive. Um, uh, on, a, on a personal level, you know, strategy teams, comms teams, private offices, the, the kind of, you know, the people who, who drive a lot of the activity, um, crashing into each other, can't get on the same email system, can't get in the right building, all of these things are so disruptive. And if you did that in this year, in 2020, where um, really it's kind of, you couldn't have a better set of uh, political circumstances for delivering on net zero, and obviously with with uh, the COP conference in Glasgow mm -hmm. at the end of the uh, end of the year, 
if we don't, if you don't get the set of policies, the set of uh, spending review settlement, all of that stuff, and I think if you, if you cause uh, the disturbance that you would get from a department, you'd actually be handicapping uh, the agenda. I agree with Ed's point that really what this all comes down to is political will. And you can't magic up, uh, you can't magic the trade-offs away. Um, there are real trade-offs in decarbonisation which you need to think through and you need political bravery to get through. That, those don't disappear, in fact there's a kind of risk that they could be uh, worsened uh, just by changing uh, nameplates and, and, and focus. So you've given us sort of a not now, does that mean that actually once we've got through this year, spending review is going to happen, sort of, you know, announced in the summer, copies in November, you know, would you be saying actually, you know, the net zero targets not delivered by the end of this year, the net zero targets for 2050, do you think there's a better case in the long run for recreating a deck? Maybe, but I don't think you get over the, the you're still going to have a disturbance. You still, it's still an extraordinarily difficult challenge. So if you lose six months anyway along the way, I think that's, I think that's too much handicap. And I, I just don't think it's necessary. I think you've got, uh, you know, it really does come, come down to whether politicians want to do it and, want, and are brave enough to, to do it and spend the money and prioritise it. And I, it, that just doesn't, that doesn't change. It's more important. There are some areas uh, where you definitely need some change. Um, and there's probably some responsibilities that are bringing to bays, mm. pot potentially around mm. housing, which mm. I think is important. Um, uh, but actually, the action is probably away from Whitehall as well. It's probably, you know, devolved action. Because when you're talking about the next mm. wave of decarbonisation, where you're going to have to get uh, people mm. to do things rather than... Uh, kind of high up in the in the power system, you, you're going to have to have more local consent for the kind of changes you need. So, Angela, looking at it from the point of view of the energy industry, was it a good move to bring deck into Bayes? Did you, you know, was that a that wasn't necessarily a machinery of government change that was thought through? She said, "How to put this nicely from the point of view of optimising." Um, how to deliver as opposed to I need to reduce the number of departments so I can create space for another two that I thought of earlier. No, but has that change worked from the point of view of the energy industry, bringing energy back into the base thing, but with a climate change add-on compared to when you were at the department? So I think, I think um, there was a lot that worked about bringing the energy and industrial strategy agendas together. I mean, it's interesting looking at this, isn't it? Because the world... The world doesn't stay still, and the way government delivers needs to change to adapt to that. And I can see that we've been on a journey. Now, I'm not in the let's recreate deck camp, but I do think that deck achieved many good things and was a useful department to have at that phase in the decarbonisation journey. You, um, the area of decarbonisation where we have made most progress is in energy, and bringing the energy and climate change agendas together early on I think was a real success but one of the challenges I saw there and one of the strengths I saw in the creation of Bayes was Bayes brought together that energy agenda with industrial strategy. I think too, too often in the past people had only talked about the costs of climate change and the costs of addressing climate change. What I saw with the creation of Bayes was a new narrative evolving which was about tackling climate change as an industrial opportunity. So 
and that's something that I think we really, really need to preserve, this, this sense that we're not talking about something which is just costly, we're talking about something which is an opportunity for lots of industrial sectors across the UK. But again, it's time to evolve, it's time to move on now. I'm also in the camp that says what we need is some kind of strong, central, coordinating body. I mean, we just cannot underestimate the scale of what needs to be done and the breadth of what needs to be done. And tackling climate change is an economy-wide issue. You can't silo it in one department. It needs to be something that's got a strong driving force in the centre of government holding other government departments to account. And also sorting out some of those tricky issues that cross departmental mm. boundaries. You know, it's one thing to have each department with its mission to deliver, and every department must feel that net zero is central mm. to its mission. But sometimes the hardest things to solve in government terms are when things cross departmental boundaries. And having a strong central department that's got a mission to deliver that will hold other governments to account and help to sort out some of those cross departmental issues, I think that's the way to go. Okay, I'm just going to come to Angela F., Angela Francis. Angela, from an environmentalist point of view, um, the creation of DEC was a sort of bit of signalling that climate change had achieved a sort of primacy in the environmental agenda. Certainly when I was at the Department of the Environment, when we lost climate change to DEC, though we retained adaptation mm -hmm. points that Ed made, uh, we sort of felt that you know, we were losing a huge big part of that, and almost thought that DEC as it was then created, was determined not to see climate change as an environmental issue. What do you think about, um, yeah, about DEC? Were you worried when it was absorbed into Bayes? Your fears being borne out, if you had any? Um, so I had just moved into the environment sector mm. after DEC already mm. existed. I think I'm the only person on the panel who hasn't either worked in either DEC or, or Bayes. So sort of seeing from an external perspective and an mm. environment perspective, um, I think um, where we are now... Um, is we're much more interested in action than distraction, as you said. So creating a department, and it was hugely symbolic and hugely important at the time, and it might have been the right thing at the time of the Climate Change Act, but I think what the um, environment sector and what the public are looking for now is what are the things that government are doing that's signalling they're going to start delivering action. So we've got climate assemblies happening in Birmingham over the next couple of weeks. There was a, a national grid uh, report out said that it needs... Um, 120,000 uh, new engineers in, um, in um, renewables and there was a survey that said 7 out of 10 uh, men and 8 out of 10 women, not sure about the difference in men and women here, want to work in an environmental, an industry that's got an environmental purpose. They want to contribute. I think people want action. They want a framework so they can start doing things. So I very much agree with uh, Angela's point around um, industrial strategy. We had with DEC, we had you know, it's not a standalone climate department, it was energy and climate together. And that made us kind of move on very quickly with the power sector, it was inc incredibly important. Then we kind of moved um, the climate change issue to Bayes and we put kind of climate change and industrial strategy together. And that's given us a clean growth industrial strategy, which is hugely important, in my view, for the, for the opportunity. And I think the Conservative Party throwing off the spectre of 1970s industrial strategy and really talking about how it puts clean growth at the centre of reinventing industry, it seems very odd to me that we might lose that at the point at which the government is going to be a revolutionary government that wants to transform and deliver for the working classes in the Midlands. It seems odd that we potentially might lose that connection. Um, but what we had is, you know, DEC doing energy well, uh, Bayes doing 
climate and industrial strategy well? Do we keep having to pay past the parcel and then give it to transport so we do transport well and then give it to housing so we do housing well? We can't go on like this. We need to do them all at the same time. So a centralising mission uh, that's held by, I think, the PM and held by um, Treasury where all departments work together on this is absolutely crucial no matter what structure you have. So I think structures are less important than how we uh, get uh, coordinating action across departments um, and how we, um, how we get action. And I think the public and the environment sector aren't going to be distracted by a department and a, and, a, and a nameplate, as Guy said. We want to see that this is part of a really moving into a, a decade of action and 2020 being the start of that because it is so important. So, um, so I think it's sort of quite consensus that actually, you know, that deck worked. Bays worked in terms of you know bringing those two two together, <laughs> uh, and I've nodding heads at the idea that we should you know now it's time to help the Ministry of Housing, Community and Local Government get the message a bit more or whatever. But I'm quite intrigued by it. we've got a sort of model of a super department, which is the Ed model versus the model of a sort of strong strong central unit doing it. So. Uh, one of the questions that on your sort of super department, and we hear that you know there are ambitions in government to reduce the number of ministers. What's not in there? It sort of seems like quite a big department because you've got housing, but there are lots of other ambitions on housing, about house building and things like that. Transport, yes, decarbonise transport and transform that. But we also have things like Northern Rail powerhouse, da 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 sorting out loads of aviation treaties after Brexit or whatever. So actually, how coherent is it to bring this super department? Because the experience of, the nearest we came to that was under John Prescott, when we had the massive yeah, DTR, which nobody thought was a great success. Well, first of all, um, the key thing is having someone at the cabinet table to give it yeah. the profile, to give it the focus. Because when it's in a big department like Bayes, mm. or you're looking for the mm. Prime Minister, looking for the Treasury, surprise enough, they had a few other things to do. Yeah. And one of the great things I found was because I was responsible, I could outfox the Chancellor. Because I was thinking about it all the time, he was thinking about it a bit of the time. And so we made a lot of progress because I was able to uh, outfox George Osborne. And I have to tell you, this, the idea that we should wait till COP's over, I'm afraid I completely disagree with you. Um, I led the UK delegation for three COPs. And um, it wasn't the whole of the department being used, it was primarily the international climate uh, department under Pete Betts. Mm. So it was a, a relatively small number of officials um, who would not be disturbed by any change. So that argument falls away. The other argument that there's a, um, it would get in the way of action, there's a huge amount of action that goes on. I mean, you know, anyone who's thinking about Whitehall, you know, it will keep going on. The question is, has it got the right policies? I don't think this change would get in the way of the, the policies. If the, um, if the politicians got their act together, um, they could, the officials could do some of the policies because a lot of it of, of DEX work is with the private sector. And the private sector just needs to know the direction of travel. Mm. And the private sector will do it. So that disturbing argument falls away. I'm afraid Bayes has been a total and utter disaster for climate change. Uh, and I completely disagree with mm. industrial transport. I just I don't want to sit on the fence here, you know. Um, because, you know, under, when, under DEC, working with Vince Cable when he was at Biz, we produced industrial strategies. For, for example, on offshore wind. These worked. We got people to invest, like Siemens uh, at Hull, and got uh, a major uh, uh, industrial manufacturing uh, site going there. There hasn't been one since of its scale at all, despite Bayes. And let's remember, 
under the first two years of Bayes, we had Nick Timothy in number 10 preventing the words low carbon getting in the first industrial strategy. Which brings me back to the point, is about the politicians. Um, and I do think if you have a politician who's charged with delivering net zero, then they are going to be able to do that far more effectively because that's their job. And I'm not saying that every aspect of transport policy or every aspect of housing policy goes into this. This role, if it had that title, Net Zero, and that, that purpose, it could be a coordinator for some of these. It could be a champion for some of these. Um, but let me give you just an example of my uh, experience. You know, we worked with DCLG on the uh, Zero Carbon Homes Regulation. We got lots of agreement with the industry. We got agreement across the coalition. What happened a month after the coalition? I think it was page 49 of some obscure document. They got rid of that. So it comes back to the politicians and the politics. Uh, and I just think if we can get a political leader there with the power and the status, we can move this forward agenda fast because we have to move fast. I'm just. Uh Guy and um, Guy and Andrew, you're sort of making the case for sort of you know status quo, maybe status quo plus a strong central tr capacity to drive this. Are you thinking, Andrew, of something in the cabinet office or in the treasury, or where might you see this sort of drive coming out from? Or do you think this is a new, different department? Are you with Ed on the department for net zero? I mean, it could, it could sit in the Cabinet Office, it could be some other central body. I mean, the important thing to me is that this thing's got the ability to span the work of all government yeah. departments rather than sitting narrowly mm. in any one of them. And that just is about the breadth of what we need to do to achieve mm. net zero and the breadth of the agenda. Guy, um, I think actually the government is running the COP out of the Cabinet Office because they've created a big COP mm -hmm. unit out of there, which you know, answers one of the sort of points about doing this. But do you think actually a sort of big central capacity, a sort of big secretariat, almost like, you know, not quite Dexu, but how we're told that the government's going to run the second phase of the Brexit negotiations out of the Cabinet Office, you know, is actually what you need to coordinate cross-government activities if we leave the, you know, leave as you would the bits of responsibility in their existing departments? Well, you, you absolutely have to have a strong central capability to, to drive it if it's a yeah. political priority. And that's, that's um, the, however you rearrange uh, your departments. I think that's, that's absolutely essential. Just one point on, uh, to, to pick up mm. on uh, what Ed said. Um, just, just as a, a point of fact, uh, climate change was in the uh, industrial strategy. In fact, clean growth was one of the pillars of the industrial first, strategy. The it was in the green paper. But you are right that it was a nasty battle. But that comes back to the central point. If you have people who are in uh, important roles who don't think this is important, it's going to be harder. It comes back to do you know do do the ultimately the politicians want to do the set of policies that. Um, that, that, are, that are there. Now, uh, if they were really serious about this, mm. they'd have a, obviously have a strong mm. central function um, uh, driving it mm. and testing it, etc. Although I am skeptical of how many decisions about this mm. stuff is, are made in the, in the, in the centre, um, mm. which gu mm. potentially gums everything up. But, um, but, you know, you just can't escape the, 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 the need for the, for the people who are making the decisions to be thinking this is important. So, Angela, one of the things with the creation of DEC was this sort of split between mitigation and adaptation mm. that used to be both in, in DEFRA. 
do you think they fit naturally together or does the sort of parent arrangement, you know, obviously adaptation is quite a lot about land management, about floods and stuff like that. Would you take those out of DEFRA and into, into a new department? Was that a mistake in uh, 2008 or was that... Did that make sense? I think I'd probably go bigger than adaptation and, and mitigation and think about how do we do climate and nature together. So we have got an, we've got a net zero target. It's huge. It's an enormous challenge. We also have got uh, a, a natural species crisis. We've got an extinction crisis. Um, and how we address our climate challenge by bringing in, uh, in nature will actually mean that the enormous benefits we get, which are already economic benefits, will also maximise the health benefits, the quality of life benefits. If we can deliver um, um, natural flood management, if we're delivering carbon sinks through accessible woodlands, if we're doing these things right, we make the transition uh, not just uh, you know kind of uh, what we need to do for a compliance with our carbon budgets. We make it about the, a better quality of life, better economic opportunities, mm. connecting climate and nature. So I think I, I think I'm not haven't got a structural preference mm. for how we do it, but we have to have a government which sees these twin challenges mm. as opportunities. I think I mean the UK has got um, climate engineers, environmental scientists, planners who should be solving these problems. And I think that's why I, I um, disagree with Ed on the industrial strategy point. We have to see our obligation, our responsibility, and our opportunity at, in solving some of these challenges. And it's not just all about manufacturing. Some of it's about land management as well. Um, and I think that uh, is, um, is the place where we do it. And the reason I think it's important to connect it with those things is the challenges we have on decarbonisation and nature are now not just power and transport and homes, it's things that move. It's um, chickens and beef and, uh, and um, phones and things that move across borders. And so trade becomes incredibly important. So industrial strategy, I think, is a place where we can have a sensible conversation about what trade policy we want. We, we're, apart from 2020 being an environmentally important year, it's also the year we're gonna carry on negotiating our future relationship with Europe. And if we don't get environment and nature at the center of the type of economy we're trying to achieve in trade, that's where we could really slip up and really un undercut some of the things that we're doing really well on the agriculture bill, um, things we're doing really well on the environment bill, could all be um, undone with a trade bill which allows us to offshore our emissions and not support the, the manufacturers and agricultural um, land managers. We're wanting to really go further and faster in innovating new ways of producing food and goods. But, but that's why I think you need climate change out, outside base, because I agree with you. Um, we need all departments, whether it's um, the Treasury, or whether it's Bayes or whatever, mm. to be focused on climate change. Of mm. course we mm. do. And I think the point you make on mm. trade negotiations is absolutely clear. Um, but my worry is that if it's all in Bayes, there'll all be the battles within Bayes and the trade-offs within Bayes, and there'll be no real champion because Bayes will be saying, well, we've got to make get these trade deals over the line, haven't we? We've really got to do that because the Prime Minister wants his trade deal mm. with Trump. So... Yeah, climate change, okay, but don't worry about it. So, and so the trade-offs will, will, will be within a government, within a government department, and will not be transparent. And if you want transparent debates on those issues, and want to bring out those trade-offs, don't hide them in one department. But that was the argument against creating DEC, though, because it was always perceived that the big trade-off was between climate and the you know, energy. You know, if you look back to the 2003 Energy White Paper with the sort of different pillars, security of supply, affordability, and climate change, those sort of three pillars. But they were more transparent. I would argue they were more transparent in DEC. I was very conscious that I had those three issues 
and they were transparent, and people could see how one was trying to manage them. And I would go to conferences and conferences and talk about the trade-offs. The problem in Bayes is just so many trade-offs. Uh, you can't uh, capture it in the way that we did with climate, energy security, and affordability. Did, did, did you have an agenda of sort of thinking actually it was a big mistake? What they should have done, we certainly at DEFRA thought this at the time, they should have put energy in, we also wanted planning, but anyway, they should have put those into DEFRA and we'd have had a bigger DEFRA uh, rather than actually hive off climate change into this separate debt. Did you sort of think actually? I, mean, I, I like the Secretary of State for no, I just, I just thought the stuff should come to me. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, I, when I was dealing with <laughs> Owen Paterson uh, and uh, dealing with his desire to stop uh, onshore wind, mm. which he wanted to do, mm. uh, when I was dealing with Eric Pickles, who wanted to mm. undermine, undermine mm. me on the planning system to stop onshore mm. wind, um, I was very glad that they didn't have any, the responsibility. Mm. I, th I think this comes to yeah. the point we said about, yeah. about who the politicians yeah. are. I mean, you know, people argued for ages mm. about mm. DEFRA. How do we, how do we, how do we get DEFRA to, to be more active? And the answer turned out to be put Michael Gover there. I mean, mm. suddenly the That's department it. changed. Yeah. He wanted to do things mm. to rehabilitate himself or whatever he needed to do. Yeah. He, he, uh, maybe he actually believed in that. <laughs> he, might, he might have believed in those things. And yeah, he, maybe, maybe. <laughs> and, and it made, it made, you know, it was like a kind of a rocket under the department. And it's amazing. So, so I don't think we should put too much store by structures and more store by who are the people who are going to be put at the head of these ministries. I mean, it is very worrisome when you have ministers who are put in charge of ministries who you don't have faith in, who don't, you don't believe are going to drive it. Um, so I think that is important. Ministerial representation and good ministerial representation, big hitters, and having uh, a, a mechanism, I don't know what a unit, for um, embedding car, uh, zero car, net, net zero across governments and having strong leadership at the centre. So I think it needs to have backing, and it needs to be Treasury backing as well as Prime Ministerial backing. So Guy, if you contrast when you were at DEC with when you were at Bayes, did you sort of feel that DEC is a sort of quite small department? It's only when I was at DEFRA, we thought, you know, DEFRA basically once a decade gets a Secretary of State who is pleased to be at DEFRA and wants to do something <laughs> with the agenda, she said. Uh, and you, you know, as a different official, you try and ride those coattails for that period and then hope that the sort of backwash lasts until you get the next, you know, wave comes in. Um, <laughs> because it's not seen as a very high profile thing. It's not very high in the cabinet pecking order and things like that. Did you feel that, you know, the transition from deck to bay, that you were actually a bigger, weightier Whitehall player when you were bays as opposed to when you were just... And not exactly squeaking away at the margins at DEC, but sometimes at DEFRA we sort of felt we were pigeonholed no, as a green NGO squeaking away at the margins. And I think that, I, 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 I do agree with that, and I think it's, it's a really interesting point that Ed made, and I wonder whether this is a coalition mm. dynamics mm. versus a mm. single party yeah. government dynamics, because there's obviously a different set of yeah. dynamics that sure, goes on sure. in, yeah. in that circumstances. I found that when we were DEC, and you know you have these, uh, you know, kind of, or it was, it was normally to do with industrial mm. energy prices or things mm. or choices around there. And, you know, Amber would be there and Sajid on the mm. other side and Oliver Letwin would always be in these meetings trying to, trying to broker a compromise because that's kind of how, how, how mm. that worked uh, post-2015 post election. There weren't particularly satisfactory meetings mm. in terms of really grappling it out. In fact, the action mm. tended to happen outside of it. Versus when you're in Bayes, and actually you can have a, you can talk about the trade-offs between uh, ministers and mm. officials on a much more kind of sophisticated way, rather than kind of 20 minutes snatched, uh, you know, interministerial group, which is pretty unsatisfactory way to do it. And then you come to a view, and then you go out for the for the rest of the argument normally with 
uh, Treasury, depending on what the particular issue, issue would be. I, I, I think you did have more weight in that situation, but I also recognise that Ed might be right in a kind of uh, in a coalition dynamic that there's actually an advantage in that. Angela, when we look at the sort of wider landscape, uh, you know, the sort of, when I was at DEFRA, we almost used to say to Ofgem, well, we want you to do this, we want you to do this as well, we'd like you to do this, and just sort of turf a whole bunch of conflicting duties over the wall and just say, oh, you're paid quite a lot, you're a bunch of regulators, got nice offices, you go and work it out. I mean, if the you know, government's serious about net zero, what does it need to do to the rest of the sort of landscape to help the private sector deliver? I, th I think that's absolutely right. I think it's easy to get preoccupied by the, the big picture machinery of government, what departments are there going to be, who's going to be Secretary of State, and that's part of the landscape, but in order to deliver net zero, it goes far beyond that. And it absolutely includes some of the bodies that sort of sit around the edges of government. I'm sure they wouldn't like me describing them like that, but you know, in my area, a body like Ofgem and its remit in terms of uh, how, it, how, how it manages the, the energy system, really, really important. And um, uh, the Ofgem is, is a creature of statute, it's been set up in legislation, and it's got this hodgepodge of duties and responsibilities and obligations. I was reminding myself of them last mm -hmm. night, and it has to have regard to this and think about that and consider the other. But nowhere does it say a central mission of Ofgem is to deliver net zero. Mm -hmm. and, and it's that kind of change yeah. that we need to embed. Or there's a very lively debate at the moment about whether we need an independent system mm -hmm. operator in the energy yeah. system. And if we did have an independent system, op system operator, what might its role be? Could it help to bring a bit more coherence to some of the planning around the development of the energy system? Mm -hmm. So I think we absolutely need to think through not just machinery of government, central mm -hmm. government, but what does that mean for some of these associated bodies too? And the other bit that I think is a really important and quite difficult part of this agenda is the relationship between central government and local government and the regions mm -hmm. and cities mm -hmm. and communities because, you know, I think it's a fantastic thing to galvanise community enthusiasm for being a part of this. And I think the net zero agenda is so far-reaching that you can't have solutions that are merely dictated and imposed from London, from central government. You need to be able to have solutions which work for communities and work for regions. But quite how you get that balance right, how you deliver this broad agenda with a central government drive, but taking proper account of the views of and the, the capabilities of regions and local communities. I think that's a real challenge. Okay, we're going to go to questions, comments from the audience. I'm going to take them, if there are quite a few, I'm going to take them in clutches of three and not get every panellist to answer every question. So if you want to do something, if you're in the oversight, overspill room, please come into this room, otherwise we don't know you have a question to ask. And I'll get our roving mics to rove. I'm going to come down to the front here. So, and... Moira, please introduce yourself. Thank you. Um, I asked Jill if I could say something. I, I'm Moira Wallace and I was the first permanent secretary of DEC and uh, set it up and saw it through half its brief eight-year life. Um, and I would like to say that uh, I think the question ought to be how will we prevent, prevent and adapt to dangerous climate change? And the answer mm. is obvious that a problem of that nature requires very strong and long-term coordination and leadership every aspect of it. It's urgent, it's important, it's dangerous, it's expensive, it's multi-actor, uh, it's cross-departmental. Everything about it requires very strong coordination. Um, 
I think, of course, it is disruptive. It, a guy, if you think merging a department is hard, you should try opening one. <laughs> Um, and I can remember when we just had a piece of A4 on the front of the building to say we were the Department of Energy and Climate Change. <laughs> so I don't underestimate the difficulty, but that pales into insignificance compared with the actual problem we're talking about. So the key thing, if you're concerned about that, is put in place all the things you would do to try and manage that well. Um, the other argument against this is that uh, climate change is so multi-actor that it would be better if left to many. Well, read the last Committee on Climate Change report on how we're doing and see if you think it's better left to many. I don't think the, I'm, I'm not being rude about what's going on, but I don't think that the way results are going supports that theory. Um, I do think if you make any change, you should try really hard to preserve the synergies that have been created at Bayes. Just as when DEC uh, was created, I think quite a lot was done to preserve the really good relationship with DEFRA, which had hosted this for a very long time, and indeed with is. Um, I think that then you've got a question of what sort of department you should have. I think in memory of David Mackay, whatever this department uh, does, it should be the department for arithmetic. In other words, <laughs> it should be a department that seeks to ensure that uh, the country's plans add up to the thing we've just legislated. Um, but uh, that could be very lean. Um, I think it might have more credibility, as I think DEC did for all its size, if a department also had some pretty hefty delivery and change responsibilities itself. And I think DEC has got a good story to tell in terms of what it did on power, and a lot of our emissions reductions were in the, over the last decade have been in the power sector. Uh, so maybe power, climate change, I think there's a very strong case for putting adaptation and mitigation together. Uh, because I think in terms of communicating this to the public, explaining how those two expensive problems are linked might work quite well. Uh, and I actually think you should think about putting one other big uh, net zero delivery responsibility in there, and I would like to vote for housing, uh, because we're housing, the building stock, insulation, heat, very, very complicated area where we're not making enough progress. But actually, the, the panel's dividing between you should have a super ministry and you should have a strong center might I suggest we should have both. Uh, the role of the centre is really important. I don't think it's reasonable to expect the Prime Minister, him or herself, to champion this on their own. If they had a really strong central resource supporting them, think Michael Barber, that sort of delivery unit, infrastructure uh, that was actually helping your climate change and whatever else ministry to make this point, I think you might see quite a step change. So I think you start from the question of what deals with climate change the defining problem of our century and forever. Um, one other thing where the IFG has worked on before is you should look at other things that uh, where government has innovated to deliver them. Might be worth looking at how the government managed the Olympics, which introduced an element of cross-party as well, because taking this out of the cross-party debate a little bit would be helpful and bringing in a lot of different interests. Sorry to say so much. No, that's brilliant. I thought, uh, thought I debated putting Moira on the panel and thought, no, she probably won't want to talk about this in public, but I was clearly wrong. Yes. <laughs> okay. Just uh, since I have the microphone, Hartley Miller. Um, yes, delivering the Olympics is a, is a good thought. Um, delivering Crossrail is also mm. a thought. There's delivery. But the question is, how far have you got? And delivering net zero seems to me to be um, something which is not the same as delivering a railway. You can't tell halfway through whether you're actually on track. 
And a lot of things interact, and a lot of things are responsibility of private sector or of, of local government and of decisions taken in central government which have to be <coughs> modified in that light. And the question that arises is both about the central government organization but also about the monitoring of progress. We don't have the influence on uh, our politicians at the moment that Nigel Farage had on Brexit. It would be quite nice to think the politicians were being held to account. National Audit Office can make some extrapolation of what is happening, but the National Audit Office is not equipped to have a model which looks 10 years ahead. And I'm very interested in whether the panel thinks that some independent, quasi-independent planning body ought to exist to... So you don't think the Climate Change Committee performs that role? Because that's supposed to be its function. Uh, yes, but is it... How, a, a, how independent is it, and B, how visible is it in terms of how it will interact with either a panoply of departments or with one central department? Okay, I'm going to hold that one. Let's go for another couple of questions. If we go row back. And Thank you. Uh, Mike Water from Transportation Professional Magazine. Um, cleaning up transport will play a key role in reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. What policies would the panel like to see in making road and public transport greener? And are you confident that a new super department for net zero would be able to deliver? Okay, and one more question in this round. Let's go to, yeah. Andrew Turnbull, one time, firm of sector in the Department of Environment, and it was a big department. I don't agree that DEC was a success. I think it was actually yes. a failure. Um, I think it bungled energy policy. We now have a whole patchwork of programs certainly bungled nuclear power, and by believing in the remorseless rise of real fossil fuels and going for contracts with different regulations, <coughs> a lot more expensive. But mainly, it's the question of how decisions get taken. If there are conflicting objectives, you can do it in two ways. One is different departments argue for their case, mm. and there is a mechanism of reconciliation. The other, and David here, has the right mm. arguments becomes the wrong mm. conclusion. We should put as many of these as possible through synthesis into one department and let them argue it out. Now, in my view, DEC had inherited four objectives, which was climate change, security supply, competitiveness, and affordability. I think that the climate change completely trumped all the others. And uh, the, the people that wanted to speak for those other objectives would ne never got hurt. So it's important that they don't get put into this super department and then just get crushed by uh, the net zero. Well, good. I, I think the answer is much more close to having a central coordinating mechanism. Simply giving everything to net zero uh, with no, no one able to argue that well, when you apply this to housing, is every um, gas boiler in the country going to be ripped out? Mm. What's the cost of that to uh, housing policies? Someone's got to speak for those things. Mm. They have not gone away. However whatever weight you give to net zero. So I think it's basically leaving departments to argue their case for their policies and then coordinate the differences in the centre. Okay. Well, those are three very interesting questions. I'm going to start with this point here about monitoring and uh, the idea that we don't have a powerful enough way of monitoring. Angela, I mean, do you think the Committee on Climate Change is the sort of slightly sort of 
feeble what chihuahua that's being portrayed here or is it actually something that really is you know capable of keeping the government to account it's very notable that uh, just as they published their report saying the government should go for net zero, they also published their latest assessment that said the government was off track on 25 out of 26 of their uh, things needed to deliver the next carbon budget or whatever. So yep. what do you think about the Committee on Climate Change? Um, I think the Com Committee on Climate Change has, has been incredibly important for um, the, uh, the way that the um, government have approached the Climate Change Act and, and you know, with, with such long-term targets having a climate budget, a, a carbon budgets, and having um, the Committee on Climate Change giving us those assessments of not just what policies we have now, but are we on track in the next round, the next round, has been, been, been very valuable. Uh, as Jill says, you know, they have not pulled their punches in telling governments um, that they are not doing enough. They have shown where the policy gaps are um, in their progress reports, and they have um, criticised the government strongly for not taking forward the recommendations of the... 2018 report, uh, by 2019, I'd say only one of 20, 25, 26 had been delivered. So, I mean, I was going to look at, uh, I looked at the progress report before this um, before the session, and, and the things, the action areas we need are in surface transport, industry, buildings, agriculture and land use, and we need to do power again. So we've done so much in power, and we almost think we've done it, but all the things that will be required in heat pumps and electrification means we need to do it all again. So there is, no, I, I don't um, subscribe to this idea that we can put bits of this in the ministry and make it work. We have to move on all fronts together. So we have to have a solution where we are um, getting cross-departmental uh, activity working and getting transport happening at the same time as buildings, getting land happening at the same time as power. So um, I think the CCC uh, do do that monitoring job for us. Um, yeah. Anyone else? Anyone think the CCC is it independent enough? It's an executive NDPB of deck. It's a sort of deck base. It's a sort of slightly weird status for something that's supposed to be a watchdog. It has to get its budget from that department. I don't, I don't recognise that characterisation of CCC at all. I think I, like you, you really feel it when you're in government. Uh, and actually, I think the kind of the the, the set the kind of uh, architecture around the climate change budgets, etc., really does make a difference. You can't, you know, if you didn't have that, what you would do, what, what government would easily do is they, they, they'd announce something, some kind of uh, project, white elephant, and then whenever said, how are you doing on climate change? And they say, oh, well, we've got this uh, offshore wind turbine going on over here. That's fine. And everyone go, well, that's probably about all right. It's just the, the CCC really does drill into whether you've, uh, whether you've done it properly, um, whether politicians take, choose to take their advice or not. Can I make one more point, point on, monitor, on the monitoring as well? Uh, is that one of the things that we're not doing effectively enough, whether we do monitor mm. production emissions mm. and consumption emissions, our production emissions are, are where our targets are set, mm. and we haven't paid enough attention to how we're decarbonising. Mm. So are we decarbonising by actually reducing emissions, or are we just offshoring? Mm. And so our production emissions mm. have gone down 44%, mm. but our consumption emissions have only gone down mm. by 15%. So we are a long way off actually solving the problem. So I think there is something that we can do in looking at a wider set of metrics of our footprint, and that brings up my trade point that I raised earlier, to make sure that we are actually decarbonising in the way that really is using um, our industry and ingenuity to, and innovation to solve problems that the rest of the world needs to solve rather than just shipping everything offshore and, and saying we've achieved our production target. That, that's not good enough. Ed, I'm sure you'll have a view on how much you felt under the lash of the Carbon Climate Change Committee, but... This question about transport policy, what do we actually do to decarbonise yeah, transport? I'll have a go on that, that's not my uh, expertise, but on, on uh, the CCC, I think it's excellent. Um, 
if anything, I'd look for ways to strengthen it if we could. Mm. But I think um, I think its track record has been really good. Um, I would point to the issues around carbon budgets because I mm. think not only is the government not on track on it, but the carbon budgets we all think it's a science, but it's not. It's, you know, we're learning mm. about how the carbon <laughs> budget together because because actually the measurement of some of this mm. stuff we're we're at the cutting edge mm. of how we do it. So we there ought to be it's a bit of a techie thing, but you mm. see there were proper debates about carbon budgets and how you really monitor them. I have to say, I have to take the, ch the challenge from Andrew Turnbull. And I just, uh, obviously, uh, given his uh, amazing uh, service, I uh, do with some trepidation. I think DEC was uh, a huge success, and having sat there for three and a bit of years of it, the four objectives you talk about were always in my mind. And I'd love you to be a fly on the wall when we talked about energy security. Uh, because I knew there was one thing that would get me sacked, and that would be if the lights uh, didn't turn on. And if you look at the policies we did on, on energy security, um, they were pretty successful. Um, and I went to the European Union where they were trying to stop me introduce, introducing the capacity markets. And eventually I got other, other countries were introducing mm. the capacity markets because they realised they were uh, they were mm. essential part of the, uh, the transition. And, you know, and a policy like CFDs, which you mentioned, I mean, the fact is that the first CFD I signed was uh, for £140 per megawatt hour and I was criticised by the National mm. Audit Office. But it was incredibly successful because it got in the supply chain, it got in the investment and six years later, you know what the price was? £49.50. That was government policy led by DEC, legislated by DEC, which saw one of the fastest price reductions and has made Britain mm. the world leader in offshore wind. You tell me how many of the sectors we have become the world leader in such a short time and seen such a, a cost reduction that we now have a renewable power source where the costs are going to go out even further and basically push out fossil fuels quicker. I am immensely proud of that achievement and it would not have happened if we didn't have a deck. Does anyone come in on transport policies? I'm, I'm happy to yeah, transport I'll add my weight yeah. to, the, to, the, to the general praise for the role of the CCC and the work that they're doing. Um, and you know, one, one of the things that strikes me, we're sitting here today debating how can government deliver its net zero target. You only have to roll back a year and we'd be having a debate about whether we should be having this target, when it might be achievable, should it be legislated for. The thing that enabled government to take the step, the bold step, the right step of legislating for net zero was the fact that we had such a strong, credible, robust body of analysis produced by the CCC which said, number one, this is possible, and number two, it's affordable. So that is what enabled us to be having this debate about how we achieve it. And they also, I think, provide the visibility about the extent to which we're on track and the areas which need focus for attention. So, you know, I think they're doing a great job. And do you job. think energy consumers have been forgotten in the sort of, you know, subsuming of energy into climate change? Uh, Andrew's critique that the other pillars of energy policy have basically been trumped by climate change. No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I mean, the... the um, yeah, I mentioned affordability mm. in terms mm. of the advice of the Climate Change mm. Commission and that absolutely is at the heart of it. Mm. They say we can do it and we can do it affordably. I mean the interesting debate and it's a baton that the Treasury has picked up is around who pays for this and how the costs mm. are allocated because that does pose some difficult questions. We need to achieve net zero and we can mm. achieve net zero in a way which protects parts of the indust mm. industry that might be particularly exposed to competition in a way that protects particularly vulnerable customers. So th these are important things. We can do it, 
but we need to think through those issues around affordability. I don't think it's been forgotten, but I don't think it's been solved. Just on, just on transport, very, very briefly. So uh, key challenges of what, you know, we're seeing a huge driver of electrification in uh, light vehicles, which is a kind of a, a trend which is, uh, which, is, which is fantastic. The key question is how do they integrate into the power system and we were involved in the uh, electric vehicle energy task force thoughts about about that which is quite a techie kind of world but it's really important the real difficult stuff and the catapult that's what we try tend to, to worry about is hgvs shipping and and aviation that's the stuff where you've got some really difficult policy and uh, regulatory and innovation mm. challenges that you have to address. And that's where people should be focusing their attention. Okay, I'm queen to get some more questions. There are lots of questions there. Marcus, if you come down here. And then Sook, go over there. Yeah, uh, tell us who you are. Uh, Simon Evans from Carbon Brief. Um, let, let's say that um, we don't end up with new departments or a super department and then we're just reliant on, on the personalities that are in place, mm. leading the, the key departments, transport, bays, etc. Mm. I'd like to ask the panel to be as undiplomatic as possible and uh, say how, how, they, how they would uh, view the prospects of net zero policies from transport, from bays, etc. Um, given the personalities that are currently in place. So okay. is, is Andrea led some up to the so job? You're not asking people to conduct a reshuffle and say who they'd like to be doing these jobs, no. but given the current people, yeah? Yes. Hi, uh, Theo Mitchell, I work with an organisation called Praseg and another one called the Bologna Foundation. Um, a lot of the discussion has been very UK-centric, but I'm interested in thoughts on what signals this would send internationally. Uh, Guy mentioned it being a COP year, and obviously this is a pretty unique opportunity for the UK hosting the COP this year leading the diplomatic effort. Um, so would creating a new department show that we're more or less serious about climate on an international stage? And then beyond that, um, how would a new department interact with the COP presidency? Um, uh, indeed, would the current COP president still be, still be in place and necessary if we had a new Secretary of State or Minister responsible for this agenda? Oh, that's a new battle to come. And then just over here. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Brendan Marsh from Energy UK. Uh, as an association, we've called for a net zero test across all government departments. Um, so, sort of, so every policy that comes through, are you contributing to net zero or are you damaging it? So my question is really, do you think that's a good idea, depending on whatever machinery of government changes uh, we end up with in a few weeks? I'm going to say one more question, because that's probably going to be, have to be our last, given the thing. Um, can you come down here, Marcus? Uh, Larry Whitty, House of Lords. Um, having both as a civil servant and as a minister been shoved into newly created <laughs> departments, I don't think, generally speaking, it's a good idea. But we've got to do something mm. this time, mm. and it depends in which context mm. we're working. If it is true that a certain special advisor mm. wishes to shake up the whole of Whitehall, uh, and therefore we are going to create a whole range mm. of different structures of departments, then absolutely we need to make a very heavy bid mm. for something like a net zero department uh, which takes on some of the major responsibilities from other departments which are going to affect the carbon target. If, however, uh, Boris sees, the Prime Minister, sorry, uh, sees sense and keeps more or less Whitehall as it is, then we do need a central body which has teeth uh, and which is not more than a secretariat to a coordinating committee. Uh, 
Uh, and my view would be that you need to put that in the Treasury. Mm. Okay. Uh, and that either the Chancellor or the Chief Secretary has to be in charge of it, because all ministers respect them. Uh, and they can allocate resources and, so, and, uh, and decide where the cost lies. Um, so in those circumstances, uh, a powerful, small, but nevertheless effective central body mm. is needed with a close relationship with the Committee on Climate Change. Okay, I'm going to just ask you, Larry, to pass your microphone back and we'll just take a last question from Vicky. Uh, Vicky Bryce, I was working at the Department for uh, Business when uh, DEC was created and it caused lots and lots of problems, of course, but uh, I can see some of the benefits of it. Only some, I have to say. But, uh, but the interesting thing for me is a number of these issues are very international. We talked about shipping, we raised mm -hmm. the issue of aviation, where, of course, there are international uh, norms already being developed mm -hmm. in shipping by the IMO, for example, International Maritime Organization. Mm -hmm. But then there are all these things happening in Europe, particularly uh, this view uh, on offshoring of, um, um, of uh, uh, production and therefore carbon emissions. And what would be, for example, the view of the, of the panel, which would interest me mm. hugely, on a carbon tax uh, yes. of, of uh, an export, whatever, import carbon tax, whatever it's called, which suddenly the EU mm. is intending uh, to push ahead with. So how does that yeah. sit neatly with our net zero? Okay, we've got some brilliant questions there, which I'm going to synthesize, she said, into a final thing. So first of all, let's pick up this sort of international point. Um, would, you know, actually is having a Department for Net Zero, would that help the sort of COP diplomacy or would it just lead to a sort of bunch of rounds with Claire Perry sitting there in the Cabinet office thinking she's going to be running, running the COP, you know, is there interest, international interest in the way in which the UK is setting about these issues? Angela? Yeah, I mean, I think the best signal we can send for COP is a very ambitious NDC. And I don't care about the department. I don't think anybody's going to be interested in it. Just what reminds what NDC stands for. Sorry, um, nationally determined contributions. So at the UK's um, commitments under, under Paris, we already have made commitments, and now the next stage is to ratchet those up and increase ambition. So that, I think, is due out in summer, and that will be the strongest statement about the UK's intention post-Brexit about what kind of economy we want to be. So I, I think... Um, that is much more significant than, than uh, departmental reshuffles. Mm. I, I agree with the points that, uh, um, that uh, Lord Ritchie made around um, changing departments and how yeah. difficult that might be. In a 2020 year, I, I would like to see um, all departments putting together ambitious policies, and that's what we need for COP. Border, border yeah, well, adjustment taxes? Uh, well, I, I think that this misses the, the key issue that I learned at, mm. at DEC, which was if you're trying to uh, make huge progress, mm. you've got to take people with you. Mm. And uh, the contracts for difference mm. and the auction regime mm. may have been second order mm. in terms of efficiency mm. of the economist model, but they worked and they've achieved mm. their goal. And therefore, I think one has to be slightly cautious about those types mm. of approaches. And I would, I've been talking about and thinking mm. about some of the issues that Mark Carney and others mm. have been raising about if we go to that, actually the heart of capitalism, mm. go to the debt markets, go to the pension uh, regulations, go to the insurances, go to the stock exchanges, and really build in climate change risk at the heart of capitalism, and force investors and corporates to take decisions uh, taking account of climate change risks. There's a whole range of different uh, ideas being developed. If you look at the regulations coming out of Brussels, there are some fantastic new ones around green mm. finance, we were ahead of the game, we're now being overtaken. 
and I would hope that we can take Carney's work, and I think it's probably the biggest win that we can get from COP26, actually, to transform the way uh, financial markets are regulated. Uh, and I think that would probably be far more effective than the UK doing that, that particular thing. Can I talk about the international signals? So yeah. I, think, I think they are important, um, but we have to get the Foreign Office really involved. And I want to pay tribute to two former Foreign Secretaries who I thought was superb. One was David Miliband, and one was William Hague. So I'm not praising my own party. Um, and they were really good because they had as a central function of Foreign Office policy, climate diplomacy. And we had climate diplomats mm. all over the world, but particularly important in mm. Beijing and Shanghai. And we changed the attitude, obviously not completely mm. by ourselves, but that investment in those diplomats in Shanghai and mm. Beijing was probably the best value for money on any expenditure we've made on climate agenda, period. Um, we need a few climate change uh, diplomats in Washington at the moment, I would suggest, uh, in Brasilia and a few other places. And those international, that international work which the debt was supported very strongly with the FCO, is a key, key factor, and we should be uh, thinking about that in our international, uh, in our international plans. Yeah. Can I come back on there? So, so I also agree with Ed that we've got to put uh, climate change at the heart of capitalism, but the key lever you've got for doing that is getting prices right within it, and that's why border tax adjustment. I, I mean, you know, I think my starting point is extremely pessimistic for COP this year, if you look at the wider international context, certainly compared to how it looked when, uh, when we had Paris uh, five years ago. It's, it's extremely difficult to see how you get that kind of deal. So at some point, you've got to go, all right, great, we've got all this cooperation going, but it's not working. So it's got to be conditional. You've got to start having an, an edge in it. I would say, I, when I asked about border tax adjustments and advice mm. in the department, I don't think there was anything that had a more violent reaction from <laughs> the machine uh, against. It was just like, no, this all, and you know, it's extremely difficult politics. But if you're serious about this stuff, then you've got to start saying, well, we're leading the way. Why should we be uh, handicapping ourselves uh, without it? So I, I think I think they've got to start a conversation on it. Could be another form that the customs, as we uh, have custom checks brought in. Perfect. I agree too, and I say that as somebody who has an instinctive wariness about barriers to trade. But when it comes to the carbon issue, what we can't be doing is offshoring our carbon emissions. That you know that that, that just doesn't work. And this is a global problem. So I think it's one of the areas where we need to make sure that we're finding ways of having common standards and finding ways that if we are taking the strong action, the bold steps that we need to take in the UK, that our business, that our in industry isn't disadvantaged as a result of that. You know, it needs to be supported to thrive, to be internationally competitive, to take advantage of opportunities overseas that might arise from this. But we've got to guard against being undercut by people who don't have the so steps, final, same strong final, A final question to all of the panel. We had a sort of thing about what policies could we expect if there weren't machinery of government changes out of the existing constellation ministers. Let's assume no reshuffle, no machinery of government changes. Uh, we've got the idea of a net zero test. We've got the idea of the role of the Treasury as the place to drive it longer term from, uh, from former Minister of Mine, Lord Whitty. Um, actually, if you're looking at sort of trying to drive change with sort of minimum reshuffling, the sort of things like that, actually, 
what makes a big difference? We've got a spending review coming up. We've got the Treasury doing its own independent review of net zero. So if we go for minimum change but maximum impact, what would you do? Gar, I'm going to ask all the panel in order. Gar. Uh, so, so what I think, it, so for, if, we kind of, if the, the chart is what is likely and yeah. what is absolutely mm -hmm. necessary. Um, so I think we'll uh, finally get to a decent package on carbon capture and storage. From a system point of view, absolutely the most important thing uh, that, that uh, we need to do. I think there will be a lot of money spent on energy efficiency. There's no mm. secrets in the mm. manifesto. Um, I think that's important and that's joined up with heat. But the, the, the one that they really need to focus on, and I uh, am kind of 50-50 whether they will, and this will take some real political bravery, is really thinking about the long-term framework for heat decarbonisation. Like, you know, mm. getting 26 million households to switch to low-carbon heating in the period we're talking about is enormously difficult challenge, certainly compared to some of the, uh, you know, easy things like Crossrail. Uh, it's, you know, it's people, it's technology, it's, it's, it's really tough stuff. So, yeah. Angela? Uh, yeah, I very much agree with that. I mean, we've made, we're making good progress on, on power, there's more to do. Mm. Um, on transport, going back to the, the previous question, we need to sort out the charging infrastructure and how that relates to the energy system and how it fits within the energy system. I mean, there's great potential for electric vehicles, mm. for example, to be forms of battery that are putting power back into mm. the grid at times, but you need a charging framework that, 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 that enables that to happen. And then I agree that the big challenge is looking at how we decarbonise heat. And one of the reasons that's such a big challenge, and this is, comes back to a more general mm. challenge for government, is it requires behaviour change from real people. So with the power sector, mm. you could tell power companies what to do and they rocked on and they did it with with electric vehicles with getting people to change their boilers mm. with all this kind of thing we need we need real people to make real changes in their lives and i think that's another challenge for government how does it how does it become an organization that can really drive behavior change angela um i just want to say one thing mm. on trade before mm. we move on mm. i don't want i'd like to relabel mm. barriers to trade that are environmental standards and, and carbon border adjustments as incentives to the right type of trade. It's not a barrier to trade. It's the, it's the, it's the reason that we will start trading in the things that we need, to, we need the economy to start delivering. And that's us uh, doing it at home, but it's also buying those things from other parts of the world, incentivising with our demand the types of production we want to see. But um, in terms of uh, if we don't get the big changes, what, what can we get out of the current architecture? I'm not going to follow Simon's in encouragement to be undiplomatic, I'm afraid, Simon. Um, <laughs> but I'd like to talk about yeah, what, what could we do? Um, and I think Treasury is absolutely key. Um, I very much like Brendan's idea and uh, WWF put out a um, 10 principles of a green spending review. And one of the things in that was um, having Treasury re be responsible as it is for... Um, um, performance against lots of targets, being, being responsible for the performance of other departments against net zero. And I think one of the other things we could do is have a much more, um, um, uh, much more of a, a hard hand around how we force departments to work together by having challenge fund budgets where you say, okay, Department of Transport and Bayes get money together if they can solve their decarbonisation and transport problems in a joint activity. So you have these kind of joint budgets where health and, and environment work together, where housing and environment work together. You don't just give people budgets and they go off and do their own targets. They've got to work together. Um, and that then forces the kind of cross-departmental um, activity we know we need. Um, those would be mine. Ed, you've been in government. You've seen spending reviews, seen the Treasury in action, maybe not as the most green-friendly 
department? What would you do about the I actually agree with, first of all, what uh, my colleagues have said. And um, going back to Guy's point on CCS, I think that's mm -hmm. critical. One of the most depressing things mm -hmm. after 2015 was seeing the CCS stopped. Uh, and we've really got to get back on that because I think it's just fundamentally uh, important on so many levels. So I, mean, I would be really pleased if, if we uh, you know, put the last four years behind us and go back to where, where we were. I think um, the heating challenge is the really big, big difficult one for the country. And that's why I think the initiatives of having citizens' assemblies on this is really important because we've got to take people with us. Power was easy. There was a relatively small number of sites and they were away from people, um, and you could do that. Mm. But we are talking about you know, people's homes, we're talking about you know, 23, 4 million uh, homes to be changed mm. with boilers and so on. So that, I think, is a tricky one. I, I would want to make one or two nerdy points on it, though. <laughs> um, I think the best way to push energy efficiency and heating is actually through regulations. But we have a set of regulations for heating mm. and a set of regulations for energy efficiency. We need to bring them together, and I wouldn't say this is a deregulatory mm. agenda, but it's a more smart regulatory agenda, and I would hope that they would go for that and um, not do what I was told when I was trying to regulate in this area, that I was being a communist. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, hopefully we can, we can move forward on that. And on, on the heating generally, we've also got to take some bold ideas. Mm. Um, it would be, you know, if, there, if the choice, and I'm not saying it's a mm. binary choice, is between electrification of heat or finding a non-fossil heat, uh, gas, to repurpose the gas network. We've got to really move f fast and trying to find which of those answers is going to be the lead answer. And I think the only way you can do it is having a really full-scale set of pilots with hydrogen, because otherwise I don't think uh, you know, we could... There's a, there's a potential cheap solution there, which uh, would be a lot less disruptive to people's homes if it can be made to work. I know it's a big if, but it's worth that, the money to, into pilots to see if it could work. Final point, even more techie. Um, but I have to say this in this week of all weeks. Um, one day I asked the people who were in charge of interconnector policy to come up from the basement where they'd been. And no executive state had shown an interest in interconnector policy, and they were, the, the, you know, they, 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 their eyes were twitching because they hadn't seen the light for years. The great thing about interconnector policy is it dealt with the issues of renewable uh, penetration, with security supply and affordability. Because what it did, it, it, with interconnectors, you can make sure we are part of a much bigger market uh, and really connected to the European market, and not just in the EU but beyond that. And the, th well, the thing I'm proudest of, which no one ever remembers, uh, was I got um, uh, National Grid and StatNet into a room to give them the political confidence with Norwegian colleagues to build a line which is going to connect us, I think, from next year or the year after, uh, to Norway. So as n in a, s s a flick of a switch, we'll be connected to a massive natural bar uh, battery, the battery of Norwegian hydropower, which will be produce really cheap power. And I'll just give you that one example uh, that if we use those types of uh, uh, technologies, and cabling is a very key part of going forward, the cabling industry is a very key part of going forward, we can actually create a green market, uh, be part of, of a European green market, uh, and uh, make a real step forward which is extremely cost efficient and extremely sensible. Okay, that's an excellent 
I think, positive point on which ends. It sounds that that might be merging to uh, a win-win that uh, even might satisfy Lord Turnbull. Anyway, I'm going to call it a day there. Thank you all so very much for coming. I'm sorry anyone whose question we didn't get to, but I think that's been really useful, interesting, hopefully people watching in the Downing Street bunker, some food for thought about your machinery of government changes as you move names around on that famous whiteboard and decide what you're going to do. Remember the warnings from Guy about distraction, but others about the seriousness of this. I'm not sure we can bring you a clear way forward, but anyway, but could you please all thank our panel? And as I said, this is a start of work. This is a newish area for us. So if you've got ideas on what we should do and what you'd be interested to hear from, please let me or Tom Sass uh, know. Thanks. <laughs>